For the remainder of this program, we'll review important research advances in metastatic breast cancer. And to begin, I asked Dr. Miller to comment on what she says to patients who are newly diagnosed with metastases and how she formulates a treatment plan. We start out with probably the worst place to start, that metastatic disease is not curable, and it's likely that at some point she will die from this disease. And because of that, we need to think about what our goals are for her therapy before we can talk about the details of different options for her treatment. Because if we're not clear on the goals of her therapy, making decisions can be a lot more difficult. So in my mind, the most important goal that I have for her is helping her live as well as possible for as long as possible. And I try to explain to patients that I'm not suggesting trading quantity of life for quality but at least giving them equal billing and making certain that whenever we can, we're not causing her more side effects, more impacts in a negative way on the quality of life by her therapy than what the disease itself is doing. What are some of the questions that patients and their family members ask you in this situation? At some point, they usually ask why, either why it's not curable, why this happened to them. And that's one of those questions that we all dread because the answer is, I don't know. I can tell them because you have bad breast cancer, and that's telling them nothing is completely unsatisfying. Their other questions often depend a lot on their social and family situation. They're very different from my younger patients with dependent children who have a lot of questions about how do I tell my children this? When, what do I tell them? How long will I be around to be able to be the mother to my children in a very active way? You can get the other end of the spectrum with some of my older patients who may be the primary caregiver for a spouse who has their own health problems, who's wondering how will this change the dynamic in the family or how long will she and her spouse be able to live independently. And that can be especially an issue if their adult children or other extended family members don't live nearby and live several states away. That issue of speaking with children, particularly younger children, is very challenging. How do you approach that for children at different ages? In that respect, I'm very fortunate in that we have a wonderful group of social workers who have a lot of expertise specifically in dealing with children, as well as clinical psychologists who have programs specifically for children of our patients. I try to tell patients that it would be presumptive of me to assume that I know their children better than they do. And their instincts about what and when to tell them are probably a pretty good place to start. And they need to pay attention to the question that their children are answering and that their children pick up a lot more of what's being said and the mood in the house and what's happening in the house than they might give them credit for. And there are some hopeful things that they can tell them, that mommy is getting treatment, mommy's working to get better, she's still going to be taking you to school, and things that, at least in the short term, we know are true, that you'll still be able to do, and that they will still be safe and cared for and loved. This clearly is a very devastating experience. What are the things that you can say that are optimistic or hopeful to patients in this situation? I think, actually, there are a lot of hopeful things we can say but with the realization that what patients really want to hear is that we can fix this, and that's the one thing I can't tell them. I think the hopeful things we can tell them is that I do have a lot of options for their therapy, that their opinion about those options and how they fit in their lives are just as important as my opinions. So some of these things we can negotiate and come up with a plan together, and I think that sense of empowerment and their involvement is helpful for patients. 
I think in some ways a helpful thing we can tell them is that we're still going to be there with them, working with them with this disease, regardless of how well or not well things go for them in the future. And that we really have made tremendous progress in what we're able to offer patients. And that's true both for patients with estrogen-sensitive disease, where we have many more hormonal therapy options that allow us, I think, to both extend those women's survival and extend the period of time that they don't need chemotherapy and its attendant side effects for even longer than we did even five or six years ago. Herceptin has only been around for about seven years in the metastatic setting and has had a huge impact for patients that we used to think had the worst prognosis are often now the patients who live the longest time with metastatic disease. And those improvements are continuing to come. What about the role of families and spouses and supporting patients? How do you see that sort of playing out? They have a huge role. And I think we're privileged to see families that do that really well and unfortunately families that don't always do that as well. I rely a lot on the family members who come to the clinic appointments with patients. I also try to teach my fellows how to position themselves in the room so they can, while they're still making direct eye contact with the patient, can see ideally everybody else in the room or at least as many of the other folks in the room as possible because you can learn a lot. If you ask the patient how she's doing and she says, oh, I'm doing fine, and three people in the periphery start making faces... That's a big clue that you need to delve a little deeper here. And there are things that aren't going so well that she doesn't want to acknowledge or doesn't want to share with you or isn't yet willing to address. But you need to know those things. How accurate are the estrogen receptor assays out there? If you look at an assay result that's positive or negative, can you be pretty sure that that's the case or are there problems with that? There are some questions with the variability, and that's such a key distinction. I think patients asking their oncologist specifically, how sure are you that the estrogen receptor status that you say my tumor has is really correct? We know that up to 20% or so of the assays done in small community labs may be inaccurate. The results are much better if they're done in a large central reference laboratory, but it's a fairly simple test to be done. And most patients' tumors are still available. They're stored for years. So unless this was someone diagnosed 10 or 15 years ago, it's usually not difficult to send someone down to a dusty basement and find their tumor and ask for that test to be repeated just to make certain. So the patients who have estrogen receptor positive tumors are candidates then for endocrine therapy. Can you talk more specifically about what types of endocrine therapy are used and how you make the decision in this situation? There are a couple of different options depending on whether that woman is premenopausal or postmenopausal. So for premenopausal women, the one that is probably still used the most is tamoxifen. Now that becomes a challenge because many of those premenopausal women, if they were diagnosed before, were probably on tamoxifen as part of their adjuvant therapy. But there are still other options for those premenopausal women, which include stopping the function of their ovaries, so their ovaries are not producing estrogen, essentially making them postmenopausal. And you can do that either by a simple surgical procedure to remove the ovaries or by giving them an injection that simply stops the ovaries from functioning. What do you tell these younger women to expect in terms of side effects with tamoxifen and ovarian suppression? 
the side effects, particularly of ovarian suppression, are really the same, whether you use the injection to stop the ovaries from functioning or you remove the ovaries, because the side effects all have to do with not having estrogen. So they're all the menopausal side effects, hot flashes, sometimes mood swings, joint aches or stiffness. Often ladies describe it best as if I feel like I've aged 10 years overnight which always makes me chuckle because, in essence, that's what they've done. We've made them immediately menopausal. I think it's also important for women to recognize that most young women get some of those side effects, but not everyone is miserable. Some patients have very minor problems with those, even though we've made them menopausal very quickly. For some women, those side effects are very troublesome. The other that I try to ask women about is whether they have a history of migraines, and if they do, if their migraines seemed at all related to their menstrual cycle. That becomes a little bit less predictable, but in some of those women, making them menopausal makes their migraines go away. In some, it makes their migraines better. That's one of the reasons why, for many of my young patients, I recommend that we start with the injections for a few months to get a sense of how the side effects of this are for them. And if side effects are not that troublesome and they're tired of getting the injections, we can always ask a surgeon to take their ovaries out to be able to dispense with the injections. But that gives us a way of doing this almost on a trial basis. So if they're really miserable and find this just intolerable, I can stop the injections. I can't so easily put their ovaries back. What usually happens once you start hormone therapy in this situation? Many of those patients will continue on hormone therapies, sometimes for several years. And at times that their disease is progressing, we switch from one hormone therapy to another. What I try to explain to my patients is that at some point, even though their disease was estrogen receptor positive, our hormone therapy options will no longer be effective in controlling their disease. But it's very difficult to predict when we might reach that point. But at that point, we'll need to think about switching to chemotherapy. I also try to make sure they know I have several hormone therapy options. So the fact that their first hormone therapy option is no longer effective doesn't tell us that switching to another hormone therapy won't work for them, because often it does. And so in these patients, you're starting out with hormonal therapy. Why are you doing that as opposed to, say, giving chemotherapy? It goes back to the goals of their therapy. The hormone therapies generally have far fewer side effects than the chemotherapy options that we have. They're easier to administer. Most of them come in pills. There are two that come in an injection given once a month. So they don't require the same commitment of patients coming back and forth to the clinic, spending half the day in an infusion center, getting an IV infusion. They don't have a lot of the side effects that patients are most troubled by or would be most visible to family members or people in their workplace or in the community, seeing them, it almost allows patients to be incognito as a patient with metastatic breast cancer if they wish to be, which is not always possible with chemotherapy. The other thing has to do with the biology of breast cancer, and we know that breast cancers that are estrogen receptor positive are just as likely to benefit from hormone therapy as they are from chemotherapy. So if I can make your disease better or keep your disease stable, with hormone therapy with fewer side effects, why would I want to give you chemotherapy now? That seems counterproductive to a goal of living as well as possible as long as possible. What about the postmenopausal patients? What are some of the choices that are used? Postmenopausal patients still have the option of tamoxifen, and that's still a very good option for those patients. They have a couple of other options, including a group of three different hormone therapy pills that all work by inhibiting the same enzyme called the aromatase enzyme. What the aromatase enzyme does is take other hormones that our adrenal glands make and convert them to estrogen. 
Now, that happens in premenopausal women as well, but in premenopausal women, most of the estrogen comes from the ovaries, which don't use the aromatase enzyme to make estrogen. So it doesn't have an effect in premenopausal women. But in postmenopausal women, where their ovaries are no longer making estrogen, that conversion of other hormones accounts for almost all of the estrogen that they have. So those aromatase inhibitors, by blocking that conversion, can lower the estrogen levels even further. And that can be effective as an initial treatment or in women who've been on tamoxifen whose disease is now progressing. There's another option with Faslodex or fulvestrant, which is given as an injection frequently once a month or once every four weeks. What that drug does is stop the tumor from making that estrogen receptor protein, so it can't effectively use whatever estrogen is around in the body that might otherwise be available to it. And we know that in the trials that have directly compared them, those aromatase inhibitor pills and the fulvestrin or Fazodex are about equally effective. So that gives women an option of deciding would they prefer to come in and get a shot in the backside once a month or would they rather take a pill at home once a day. They're both equally effective and they can be effective in either order. So they really have both of those options and they can decide the order that is going to be best for them. What kinds of side effects or complications do you see with the aromatase inhibitors and fulvestrin or Fazlodex? Well, with the aromatase inhibitors, there's still more of the menopausal side effects because even though these are postmenopausal women to start with, we're lowering the estrogen levels even further. So some of those women may notice an exacerbation of hot flashes or hot flashes that had resolved that start coming back again. They'll often notice more joint stiffness and creakiness. Occasionally they'll complain of joint pain, but it's usually more stiffness first thing in the morning or after sitting for a long time that once they get moving seems to get better. They'll often notice some vaginal atrophy or vaginal dryness or painful intercourse, some of those symptoms. I have not been as impressed with mood swings with the aromatase inhibitors. The fulvestrant doesn't seem to have as many of those menopausal side effects because you're not affecting the estrogen level in the body. You're just affecting the tumor's ability to use estrogen. But it is a shot in the backside once a month, and some people really don't like to be poked with needles. The shot has to be given deep into the muscle and given slowly, and some patients find that a bit uncomfortable or it's sore for a few days afterwards. It's usually not a big problem, but some patients may find that a bit of an issue for them. So how do you decide which one of these endocrine therapies to use in postmenopausal women? For postmenopausal women who've had tamoxifen, I talk to them about whether they would prefer a pill or a shot, and we pick whichever one they would prefer. I think probably two-thirds or three-quarters of my patients would rather take a pill once a day. I have some patients who I think sometimes based on their personality, sometimes because they already have other chronic medical problems and they already feel like they have a handful of pills that they take every day, find the idea of adding another pill distasteful, and they'd rather avoid that. I've had a couple of patients say, you know, I just was never all that good at taking the tamoxifen. And I probably only took it half the time or two-thirds of the time because I just couldn't remember it. So the shot would be better for me because then I know I've got it. And I, as their oncologist, know they've got the therapy. Can you talk about the specific chemotherapeutic agents that you utilize and what you say to patients who are beginning any one of those? Sure. Let's start with Taxol or Paclitaxel. 
it's certainly one of the most effective drugs that we have for patients with breast cancer. It's one that many patients may now receive in the adjuvant setting in breast cancer, though if their identification of metastatic disease was more than a year after they had received their adjuvant therapy, considering that as an option for retreatment is still quite reasonable. The Taxol is given as an IV infusion, and it can be given either once every three weeks or once a week. I think we have pretty good evidence now that it's a bit more effective and has fewer side effects if it's given once a week. And typically, I use it once a week for three weeks and then a week off. There are some studies that have given it weekly sort of ad nauseum, but I think the side effects get a bit tougher. I think patients appreciate knowing that there's a built-in break so that they're not in the clinic, and that really minimizes the side effects. It does not have much trouble with nausea when it's given in the weekly schedule. It can cause hair loss, so it's a bit more variable. I think what patients notice is hair gradually gets thinner, and over several months, about half or so of the patients have lost enough hair that they're more comfortable wearing a wig or hat or something, and for about half of them, it's thinner that they notice, but perhaps not to that point that would be obvious to people on the street. Over long-term treatment, it can cause some damage to the nerves that give sensation to the fingers and toes, so they may notice some numbness in those areas. And that's something that we ask them about because that's something that tends to gradually get worse when they're on Taxol for a longer period of time and gets better when they take some time off. So we want to be aware of that to stop their therapy or interrupt their therapy before it starts interfering with function. And some patients will notice some muscle achiness, kind of that achiness when you have the flu, usually the day after the infusion, usually pretty mild with the weekly formulation as well. Docetaxel or Taxotere is closely related. I tell patients to think of them as close sisters. They have many of the same functions in the cells, but they're not completely identical. And many of their side effects are also similar, but not identical. The docetaxel or taxotere can also be given once every three weeks or weekly, though there's not the same suggestion that weekly docetaxel is more effective. And there's some question as to whether weekly docetaxel actually has more side effects, so I hardly ever use that schedule for docetaxel or taxotere. When it's given once every three weeks, it definitely causes hair loss, and hair loss that is pretty rapid and pretty total for most patients. It can still cause some of those muscle achiness, flu-like symptoms a day or two after the infusion. It can cause some skin and nail changes that patients can find very disturbing but are quite variable, and some patients hardly have any of those changes. For some, their fingernails and toenails can look like they have a horrible fungal infection, though it's not an infection at all. It's just a side effect of the drug. It's a little bit less likely to cause that numbness and tingling of the fingers and toes. But Taxotere has a couple of unique side effects. Over long-term treatment, women can start having trouble with fluid accumulation and swelling that can limit the ability to continue the treatment. And some women can develop persistent tearing, which comes from a blockage of the tear ducts. So they look like they're tearing not because they're making more tears, but the tears that they make don't have any way to drain, so they spill out as tears. And for many women, that's particularly disturbing because it can interfere not just with sort of vanity things of wearing eye makeup, but reading or driving because their vision's constantly getting blurry. They're constantly wiping their eyes and blinking. Now, those were the two taxings that have been available for a while. And before we talk about the newest one, what we've seen when we ask doctors across the country about the taxanes is there's a lot of difference. Some people use Taxol, some people use Taxotere. How is that decision made and how much of a difference is there between the two? 
I think it's made more based on where people trained and what studies they might have been exposed to than any real firm data. There have been very few studies that have directly compared the two drugs, and personally, I think their effectiveness is essentially the same. And I also think weekly paclitaxel or weekly taxol has fewer side effects, so I rarely use docetaxel for patients in the metastatic disease purely because I think it has more side effects, and if it's not more effective then I don't have a reason to ask patients to tolerate more side effects. What about nabpaclitaxel or abraxine? So that's the new one on the block. And that actually is a drug that has a cool trick. So the chemotherapy drug is still paclitaxel, but it's been bound to albumin in little nanoparticles, and that changes how it gets into the cancer cells. You tend to get more of the chemotherapy into the cancer cells themselves and a little bit less elsewhere in the body. That allows you to give a slightly higher dose of the drug, though it's not clear if you really need to give a slightly higher dose. Side effects are fairly similar as far as the numbness and tingling, some of the achiness can still have effects on lowering the blood counts, which the other taxanes can. But the difference is that binding it to the albumin and putting it in those tiny particles makes the drug soluble. And paclitaxel or taxol itself isn't soluble in water. You have to use a solvent called cremophore in order to get the drug to dissolve, to give it as an IV infusion. And many women can have allergic reactions to the cremophore. And to get around that, we give them pre-medications beforehand with corticosteroids and Benadryl, and you often infuse the drug over an hour to sometimes three hours. Since abraxane doesn't have the cremophore, you don't have to give patients those pre-medications, which many patients really appreciate, particularly not getting the corticosteroids. And it can be infused over a shorter time, usually over about a half an hour. So those things can make it a bit more convenient for patients and decrease some of the side effects of the pre-medications that are needed that could be real advantages for some patients. To what extent are you using abraxane right now in your own practice? I have used it some, although I must say I haven't used it as much. And that's partly because we had realized long before abraxane became available that the allergic reactions with Taxol, if they were going to happen, tended to happen in the first infusion or two. So we gave all of our patients the pre-medications in the first infusion or two, and if they had no trouble, we started gradually decreasing the amount of the steroids and of the Benadryl and the pre-medications they were getting to try and minimize those side effects. And when Taxol is given weekly, it's typically infused over an hour. That's a big difference if you're giving the Taxol on an every three-week schedule when it's usually given over three hours. What's the downside of abraxane? Why wouldn't you use it? The downside is it costs a lot more. And for many of my patients, even if they have excellent insurance coverage, their deductibles are still based on a percentage. And it costs a lot more, so that percentage still increases the cost to the patient.